as we continue to make our way through the book of Revelation this morning, uh, let me just recap a little bit of where we've been. The book of Revelation is written to a group of churches in southwestern, what is now called Turkey. And uh, these churches were going through various difficulties, and they had various flaws, and they had various strengths. And Jesus says, you need to know who I am in your context, and especially because most of you are suffering and struggling because you are the people of my name. And so he reveals to the churches more of who he is in chapters 1 to 3, and then he reveals in chapters 4 and 5 that he is still reigning in heaven. He is still directing history in heaven, even as Caesar seems to be running riot on the earth. And then in chapters 6 to 7 in particular, if I'm getting all of my chapter numbers correct here, we have the seal judgments, actually chapter 6 through the beginning of chapter 8. And in the seal judgments, God is saying, you need to understand that the patterns and the powers in the world are actually the problem. They're actually what is leading to this rampant destruction and chaos that happens. So you see this most clearly in the first four seals, the four horsemen of the apocalypse that unleash war, that unleash death, that unleash uh, uh, economic chaos, and so on. And we look around, and of course, we understand all of these things are already unleashed in our world today. Uh, Revelation is actually not primarily about something that happens way in the distant future, but about how we understand the world that we live in today. We saw that God says, even though you are affected by all of these things, you have something that nobody else does. I have sealed you so that even though you die, you will live again, so that no one can take away your life for good. You are protected in a way nobody else is. And then we have the seven trumpet judgments in which it shows there is evil in our world and God is actively judging it and by judging it, warning the world to change its ways. Uh, we see this as the earth itself is struck in different ways. We see it in the fact that people don't find satisfaction in this life and people die in this life. And God's saints don't experience these things in the same way. They receive a special protection as all of this happens. The joy of the rest of the world may be stolen, but the joy of God's people can never be stolen. The rest of the world may end in death, but for God's people, death is only the beginning of a new life. And then there's the break, just like there was with the seal judgments. And we see the job of the church in the meantime is to continue to tell the world this is who God is. This is what Jesus has done. And this is who we must be as a result. We see this especially in the two witnesses in the beginning of chapter 11, which we just spent two weeks talking about. And the fascinating thing is where the trumpet judgments, these warning judgments, had been intended to get people to repent, they weren't successful. They didn't do that. People instead continued to live however they wanted to live, and they continued to curse God and say, this is all God's fault. And God says, but I'm warning you. But when the church speaks, something different happens. It says uh, in chapter 11, uh, verse 13, at that very hour, at the end of this contest between the two witnesses and, and the rest of the world, 
There was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven, which is different than what we saw at the end of the seal judgments, in the sixth seal judgments, where the kings and the people, high and, and, and low, said to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from God and from his wrath. God has specially equipped his church to be effective in telling people about who he is. Doesn't always feel like that, does it? And there is some ambiguity in the end of that particular section. What kind of glory were these people giving to God? The glory of, oh no, you're God and we're in big trouble, or wow, you are God and we worship you. And now we come to the seventh trumpet, the last in the trumpet series. And the big idea here is that Jesus will finally become king forever and ever. If I asked you what the very most famous piece of Christian music was, what are some of the answers you might give? This is the interactive part, so let's, let me hear it. What are some of the most famous pieces of Christian music you've ever heard? Hallelujah Chorus. Well, that didn't take very long, did it? Because Handel, when he wrote the Hallelujah Chorus, used this passage. As a matter of fact, all week I've had ringing in my mind and in my heart, the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ and of his Christ. You got to take it. It's too high for me there. So keep going. Yeah. (laughs) He shall reign forever and ever. He's quoting directly here out of uh, verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. And as Steve got to sing, he will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! This is the climax of everything that we've been looking for throughout Scripture. This is the great day. And most of us, I think, don't realize it. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. Well, let's get something straight, first of all. There has never been a moment in, in human history or any other history where God has not been king. Acumenius, I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right, a 6th century Christian, one of the only ancient commentaries we have on the book of Revelation because this book is so dang hard that no one wanted to commentate on it. But he said this. He said, To be sure, God always is king and has never begun nor indeed shall ever cease to rule the heaven and the earth and that which is visible and invisible in them. For he is without beginning and without ending and he never changes. He is the master and Lord of all things. However, since also people take the title of king upon earth, and after a manner God has those who reign with him, when the earthly kingdom of people is dissolved at the consummation of the present age, God alone will rule. If you've ever been to Westminster Abbey in London, and I'm indebted to N.T. Wright for this observation, who is English, so he has an advantage. But if you've ever been to Westminster Abbey in London, the place where, where the new king stands or the new queen stands when that person is coronated, right above where they stand is written this passage. They actually got it wrong, embarrassingly. It says, the kingdoms of this world, where the scripture says the kingdom of this world. 
has now become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. And it's there on purpose to remind the kings and queens, the rulers of England, that your reign is temporary and one day you will be accountable to God for it because your kingdom will become his kingdom. And to the powers that have been warned but not repented in the trumpet judgments, this is the third woe. I don't know if you remember from several weeks ago, but uh, you, know, you have the, the first uh, four trumpets blown. And then at the end of the four trumpets, I heard, as I watched, this is chapter 8, verse 13, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. And then we see the fifth trumpet, the, the locust with scorpion's tails. Again, this is a symbol, not, not a picture of exactly what this would look like, but who are permitted to torment the people of the earth. Then we see uh, the horses with uh, tails of snakes and uh, horrible heads with which they inflict injury and kill people. This is the second woe. And then the third woe is that God becomes king on earth as he is in heaven but only to the powers that have been warned and not repented. And we're going to come back to that idea in just a moment. But let me explain why this is true. The world is in a state of active rebellion against God. That's what Revelation is referring to here when it says the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. There is a kingdom that has set itself up in opposition to God. And it's not a political body. That's why it's not kingdoms, but instead the kingdom of this world, the way of this world, the way that we live, the way that we treat each other, the way that we live our lives in light of God or frankly with little reference to God very often is the kingdom of this world. Elsewhere in the Messiah, quoting from the book of Isaiah, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his or her own way. That's the kingdom of the world. See, the root of the problem of evil in our world isn't that there are hurricanes and holocausts and that the corrupt seek power. These are the symptoms of the great evil. Uh, the Ten Commandments sort of define what it means to be in covenant with God, who we should be in covenant with God. And the first four commandments, uh, if you can remember them, you shall have no other gods before me. If you want to be a holy, moral, just person, your first commandment is to have no God other than the one true God. You shall not make an idol and yet, we make idols in all of our lives everywhere. Idols aren't just figures of wood and stone and precious metal. Idols are actually any earthly thing that we worship. And the truth is, we are all worshiping something. We're all worshiping something. Sometimes it sounds like a pretty nice thing to worship. We're worshiping the idea of a fair and just and free society. You know the interesting thing I've noticed about fairness we usually talk about fairness when we aren't getting what we want. I think God has very little interest in fairness, as a matter of fact. And I think this because, first of all, when Jesus came to earth, he had little interest in being treated 
fairly. But he did what God called him to do. I think this secondly, because in one of the great human institutions God has given to us in marriage, remember the vows that we make to each other? It's things like, you know, I promise I'm going to love you, you know, in sickness and in health, for, for better or for worse, for richer and for poorer. And, and uh, have you taken, if you're married here this morning, have you taken an equal number of six days as your spouse in your marriage? No. That's not how it works. And God's not interested. He doesn't say, what I want for your marriage is that you know, it'll be 50-50 someday. Like, it'll work out. You know, today you've got to take care of your husband because he's sick, but tomorrow your husband will be sick, and wife, you'll take care of, of him, and that, that'll be fine. Did I just say it the same way both times? You guys know what I mean. It's all right. <laughs> See, it's not fair. I'm trying to get it all for myself right here. <laughs> Heads I win, tails you lose. But, uh, you know, what... God's not promising anywhere that it's going to work out evenly at the end of the day. He's basically promising us it's not going to be fair. Your marriage is not going to be fair. Your job is not going to be fair. Your parenting is not going to be fair. Your friendships are not going to be fair. And your job is not to make them fair. Your job is to love people no matter how unfair it gets. Convinced God has very little interest in fairness. And yet we are obsessed. Everyone needs to have the same amount of money. Everyone needs to have the same amount of opportunity. The world needs to be fair. And God doesn't care. Because you aren't valued based on how much opportunity you get. You aren't valued based on how much money you have in your account. You are valued because you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And you know what the great thing about that is? No one and nothing can take that away from you. Your opportunity can be taken away by bad people, by life circumstances, by all sorts of different things. But no one can take away the fact that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And you cannot, and I cannot take away from my neighbor that that person is fearfully and wonderfully made. That's where our dignity comes from. When we start living that way, the rest of the world starts to make sense. Because we're not striving against each other all the time. We're not looking at each other with envy and jealousy and saying, you don't, I don't have that, so neither should you. Which is usually what we mean when we say the world should be a fair place. God doesn't care about those things. And yet we are worshiping fairness. And we are worshiping success. And we've made idols out of all of these different things. We are all worshiping something. And that is the root cause of evil in our world. That our relationship with God isn't right. Those who have chosen to worship anything other than God are setting up a different kingdom. They're a fulfillment of Psalm 2, which actually is, is quoted in passing here in the thanksgiving of the 24 elders, down in verses 17 and 18. He talks about how uh, the nations have raged. The nations have raged, and yet God is still triumphant over all of them. He's not concerned at all. Jesus rose from the dead. He took the worst that Caesar had to throw at him, and he still lives. God overcomes it all. 
Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Yet another uh, movement from the Messiah, from which the Hallelujah Chorus comes. Really, we could just play that this morning, and... I wouldn't have to preach at all. But believe it or not, the Messiah goes on longer than I could ever hope to preach. It's like a two-hour-long symphony, so we'll stick with me. And now we've come to the woe, because the two kingdoms can't coexist. The human kingdom doesn't have a prayer against the kingdom of heaven. How shall we stand against God who created the world merely by speaking it into existence, who continually sustains it each day through Jesus Christ's word of power? If there was ever a moment, if you've ever read Jonathan Edwards' great sermon, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, it doesn't sound very 21st century. It doesn't sound very PC. But really, when Edwards is preaching the sermon, he's not saying God is so ready to throw you into hell. Edwards is saying, instead, you are in God's hands, and he has been offended by you, by your unrighteousness, by your evil, and yet God continues to hold you up. We are sinners in the hands of an angry God who does not let us go. It's pretty incredible. Then let me ask you, well, you know what? Let me move on to the next thing here. See, God, in his justice and mercy, he won't leave us in this place where we keep trying to build our own kingdoms and they keep falling apart in front of us, where we keep focusing on the wrong thing, making the little thing the main thing, where we keep trying to cast ourselves as the rebellion in Star Wars and find out, oh no, we're actually part of the empire. My kids were watching DuckTales the other day. Uh, I don't know, probably not in the orbit for most of you, but there's a moment in an episode where we saw the other day where there are these, these people, you know, they're invading and doing something, and, and they have this moment where they say, oh no, are we the bad guys? And that's what we discover through all of this. Despite our best efforts, not even despite our best efforts, because of our best efforts, we've become the bad guys. Because we keep saying to God, God, you know, hold my beer. I'm going to take care of this. That's very 21st century, like, young person of me, millennial of me. But God, you, you, I've got this. You go away. I don't like the way you want to solve this problem. I'm going to take care of it. Or maybe we feel a sense of responsibility, right? God, I feel really bad about this. Like, let me, let me try and take care of this. Have you ever had, I, I'm sure we've all had moments as parents. If you're a parent, you've probably had a moment where your children did something. Maybe they broke something, and then they tried to fix it. And then it was 10 times worse than it was in the first place. You're like, no, 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 no don't do that, right? It's, it, you know, kids spill something on the floor. And they're like, how do I clean up the thing that I spill because mom and dad are going to be angry. You know, they're, they're so afraid. They forget that their parents love them, even if they're a little bit irritated at the moment, and are going to take care of it, and the relationship's not going to break because of it. And so they get your favorite, like, good towel, and they start wiping it up. Or, you know, they end up spreading it everywhere instead of actually cleaning it up. And we're the children. We keep doing, God, God, just stay back. I'm going to take care of this. I got this. And we think that now we're becoming something that God wants us to be, right? When really God's like, now it's a hundred times worse. Like if you just asked me in the first place, I would have made it better. And we keep 
We keep doing this. And God in his justice and mercy, he won't leave us here. Daniel 2, we heard Connie sharing this with us, tells the story of the great King Nebuchadnezzar's visionary dream in which he saw kingdom after kingdom rise and fall, each characterized by different amounts of strength and goodness and and anything else. And finally, the entire succession of kingdoms was crushed into powder by a mountain that grew to fill the whole earth, God's kingdom, to replace every brittle and crumbling human kingdom. Later in the book of Daniel, in chapter 7, we we read this. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting one, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. God comes to take up the reins. He comes with the rag towel to clean up the mess instead of the good towel. He comes with the right tools to fix it and make it right. And we're saying, God, you know, no, no. Like, let me take, I feel too bad for you to come in and do this. I'm too angry that you let this happen for you to come in and clean it up. And yet this, the one like a son of man whom Revelation clearly identifies as Jesus Christ himself has come to be our true king. And so the coming of God's kingdom is the third woe to all who would cling to power in this world. To everyone who said, I can do this on my own. Because by the time Jesus has come back, it's too late. You've irrevocably become part of the problem. And all that's left is to clean up the mess. It's God's justice, but it's also God's mercy. He doesn't sentence us to forever seeking that which we can't attain on our own. He comes to make it right. And if you find yourself in a place of trying to do it on your own, either in conscious rebellion against a God that you think of as lacking or even evil, I invite you out of your despair because God's authority, that thing you're rebelling against for whatever reason that's in your heart, it isn't your enemy. It isn't the lesser vision. If you want to move forward this morning, all you need to do is admit, I can't do it. I'm just making it worse. All you need to do is give up your pride and arrogance that says, it's my mess, so I have to clean it up. If you were able to do it, if we as a human race had been able to do it, it would have already been done. And that leads us to the flip side of all of this, to God's great mercy. Because to those who are willing to receive God's kingdom, especially really, to the followers of Jesus Christ. All of history leads to the kingdom of Christ, their great desire and reward. And folks, whether we've followed Jesus for all of our lives or for a few moments, whether we know that we're Christians or we're wondering if we're Christians or we've clearly identified ourselves as not Christian, wherever we are in the midst of all of that, we're all asking the same question. How am I going to clean up this mess? Uh, My generation, I am what you call a geriatric millennial, which I think is probably the coolest name a generation has ever been given. I am literally an old person in a young man's body, although not so young anymore. And we have grown up with a sense of dread in our lives, and it's even more true for the generations that are coming after us. We're being told that The world at this point is irrecoverable, 
It is irredeemable. We're seeing the hope, and I remember this growing up, we're seeing the hope that came out of the end of the Cold War in the 90s just totally blowing up in our face for worldwide unity and peace. We're seeing you know, predictions of catastrophic impacts to our planet's environment and climate that are, we can't come back from. And I have felt this. I remember a couple of years ago seeing a movie with a happy ending and thinking to myself, I can't remember the last movie I saw with a hopeful ending. We're all struggling with this. And we're all, I think, at least a little bit afraid of God's coming kingdom too. Because we wish we had something better to show God when he came, don't we? Wish we'd been busier about the right things and less busy with the wrong things. We'd wish we'd wasted fewer moments and used them in a better way. Oh man, that is one of my great, great frustrations in life. Feeling like I could have used those moments so much better. But here's what happens when God's kingdom comes. The elders representing all of God's people, Old Testament and New They fall on their faces and worship God, and they say, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was. I love, this is a threefold title for both the Father and Jesus in this book. The one who uh, was, who is, and who is to come, but no longer is to come here. He is the one who is and who was, and he has already come. And we give you thanks because you have finally taken your great power and have begun to reign. There's no fighting over the authority any longer, God, because this is a vision of what happens after the last judgment. There's no more fighting over authority. You've won. And now what Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, has come true. There is no one who will naysay you. There's no one else to contest your good rule. You have begun to reign The nations were angry, here's our Psalm 2 quote, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and also for rewarding your servants, the prophets. And here, it's not just Isaiah and Moses and all those guys. But do you remember in uh, the, the two witnesses, these were meant to represent the whole church in both its priestly and its kingly aspect. And in its priestly aspect, they were prophesying to the world. Rewarding your servants, the prophets. Your servants who have just been honest with the world about who you are and what you've done. Your servants who never gave up their faithful witness. You and me. You and me, if indeed we're faithful to Jesus Christ. Rewarding your servants, the prophets. And your people who revere your name, both great and small. And then a promise as well for destroying those who destroy the earth. So there are people who would make this place as miserable as they could, whether with good intentions or bad, and they will no longer have any power. See, we're a little hesitant sometimes to want God's kingdom to come because I think we're afraid that it's different than what we've known. Right? And things that are different are scary. I heard a definition of leadership a few months ago. Leadership is disappointing people at a pace that they can handle. And what is meant by that is leading people through change, which causes disappointment at a pace that they can handle. 
That's what good leadership looks like. We're afraid of the change. We don't know exactly what it'll look like. Uh, somebody I spoke to once said, someday when I get to heaven, I, I can't wait to get to heaven because I'll finally be able to fly. And I thought, that's really interesting. You know, I, I haven't read that in scripture anywhere. And this person responded to me and said, you know, uh, it's because that's the desire of my heart and in heaven God will give me whatever my heart desires. Let me ask you, who's the king of that heaven? My heart and its desires. And our desires are so small. C.S. Lewis says, I think it's in his essay, The Great, uh, uh, his essay, The Weight of Glory, uh, that God doesn't find our desires too strong. Sometimes we feel that way, don't we? Like, oh, you know, I, I, I'm struggling with lust right now. I really want that piece of cake, and I know I shouldn't have it. We, we think, my, des- my desires are too strong. And Lewis says, our desires aren't too strong. They're too weak. Because we don't want the good things as much as we ought. He says we're messing around with things like sex and beer when eternal joy is on the table. That's why we're nervous. It's because our desires are too weak. It's because our imagination is too small. It's because our vision of God's goodness is so little when really there's nobody good like him. I'll close with this. Uh, last year, I think it was last year, I read a biography of Napoleon. I see Ridley Scott is making a movie with Joaquin Phoenix playing Napoleon, which sounds like it might be awesome. So I'm probably going to see that. But Napoleon is a fascinating guy. And Napoleon was the last of the uh, a, a theory of government, so to speak, called enlightened despotism. That sounds interesting, doesn't it? Enlightened despotism. Despot, someone who rules absolutely. Enlightened, of course, means very smart, perfectly equipped. He's really uh, uh, fashioning himself as the ancient Greeks' philosopher king. The one who, if just that person was in charge, everything would be great. And Napoleon really was great. Don't get me wrong. He was brilliant, If you were to look at France's legal code today, even 200 years after Napoleon, most of it is still based on the Napoleonic codes that he wrote, along with some of the other best and brightest folks in France at the time. Napoleon trashed the armies of Europe for decades before they finally all got together and beat him. Napoleon, uh, whatever he wanted, he made it happen. Napoleon, when he was crowned emperor of the French, he had the pope come out to do it. He's like, who, who is great enough to crown me emperor? And the pope came up with the crown. Napoleon's like, you know what? You're not great enough after all. The only one great enough to crown me is me. And he took the crown from the pope and he put it on his own head. And if there was ever anybody who at the same time was arrogant enough to think that he could be an enlightened despot and brilliant enough to pull it off, it was Napoleon. And where did Napoleon end? He ended in exile. He ended dying in obscurity. He ended up dying one of the most hated men in Europe. If Napoleon can't do it on his own, neither can we. And if we were in Napoleon's shoes, if we were as gifted and as brilliant as he was, I'm pretty sure that when the Pope came to crown us, we would have taken the crown away from him and crowned ourselves as well. Because there's a little bit of Napoleon in all of us.
The coming of God's kingdom is the third woe to everyone who isn't looking forward to it. But to the Christian, to the follower of Jesus Christ who understands that our desires aren't too strong, they're too weak. To the follower of Jesus Christ who understands that our goodness is like this and God's is, is, as Ray would say, infinite, without beginning and without end. It comes not as the third woe. It comes as the great hope. That's why it's so fascinating. Scholars actually debate here because uh, it's after the first woe, it says this is the first woe. After the second woe, it says this is the second woe. After this one, the only trumpet that's left, and there were three trumpets that were woes, it doesn't say anything about woe because the good news of God becoming king, although it's woe to some, is the best news the world could ever receive.